and read that prayer out of um, is The Pursuit of God. I think, is that right? Yes. There's a couple of Tozer books, and I get them muddled up, but it's A.W. Tozer, a fantastic book. Um, and you'll get better at your these and thys and thous and all of that stuff, too, if you read it. A um, couple of quick things as we get going. I hate to jump into housekeeping, but I do need to ask you guys to just grab those folders. If you're on this side of the section of seats, um, if you wouldn't mind just grabbing that black little folder under your seat and um, filling that out for us, that just helps us fill up with people, especially if you're new, um, to know, uh, to let you know about things like Starting Point, which is a thing we do once every six weeks or so for folks that are new around here. It's a lunch and a class. So I appreciate you guys filling that out for us and um, just letting us know that you're here. Um, other thing housekeeping-wise, is that uh, this afternoon, 5 to 7, we have a marriage class, and it's not too late for you guys to sign up and to come along. Um, You'll find in the back of the room is a a clipboard where you can just put your name down on there if you'd like to come along. We still will make sure we have room and we have material for you if you want to come along and participate. So that's 5 to 7 tonight, and uh, that will run for the next three weeks. So this Sunday and the following two Sundays, 5 to 7 p.m., right here in this room, okay? So that will be going on. Let's jump into talking about this Matthew 5 passage that GN read for us. Um, Perception. Perception is reality, Uh, What we perceive to be real and true informs what we do. And that usually is a good thing. You see, if I perceive that what's coming out of the oven is incredibly hot, that perception will lead me to not touch it with my bare hands, right? That's a good thing when I don't bare my hands. Or another example, maybe uh, I perceive that something going on with my neighbor, like something's not right. And if that leads me to, therefore, because of that perception, go and check on them, like, that's a good thing. Like, perception can be a good thing in so many ways. But what if our perception is wrong? What if our perception's off? Doesn't that have negative consequences and impact? Uh, A a number of years ago, a long time ago, I was out surfing with some friends in Australia. And as we were surfing, I remember, vividly remember about uh, two car lengths away from me, a big gray fin coming up out of the water, just two car lengths away. And in an instant, like, you know, adrenaline's pumping through my body. I'm thinking, okay, how do I get as quickly as possible back to the beach? Like, where's the next wave coming? I mean, I'm, I'm pulling up arms and legs out of the water, like, you know, to not be as good a bait as possible for this shark. I'm like, okay, wh- wh- what do I do here? Like, panic mode is in full swing. And then just a moment or two later, a second fin, the same size, comes up right beside it. And I'm like, oh, it's dolphins. Okay, good. Now, if you know anything about surfing, you know that when there's dolphins around, there's most likely not sharks around. And surfing with dolphins is this incredible experience, watching them move through the waves and the water. So all of a sudden, my perception changed my reality and what I wanted to do. I didn't want to go in. I didn't want to get to the beach. I wanted to stay out there with these things because perception had changed my reality. My reactions were changing also. So perspective that we have on things is hugely important. In our passage today, Jesus is talking about the law 
and living the law. We're talking about the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, and a lot of the Sermon on the Mount talks about the law. And he's, Jesus is kind of talking about how do we practically live out the law. But as we've already seen, perspective really informs our reactions, and that's true of the law also. You see, there are several perspectives that we can have about the law, and each one of them will lead to a different response. So the way that we view the law, when I say the law and whatever your preconceived notions and ideas are about that, that's going to impact how you feel about it or how you want to um, interact with that. So we're going to talk a little bit about this today and, and examine some different perspectives that people have, talk about the responses that they have. But before we do that, I want to just ask you this question, what is the law? We're saying the law, and I've already said it a number of times. What do we mean when we say that? The law is the commands of God. It's the way that God, who as a Christian, I believe is our creator and our designer. It's the way that he designed us to operate. It's the way for us to best function, if you would. That's what the law is. Uh, Possibly the most famous or infamous part of the law is the Ten Commandments, right? Exodus 20. Let me just turn there and give you a sampling of what most people think of when they think of the law. It's things like this. Do not have any other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself. Do not misuse the name of the law. Remember the Sabbath day. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery, etc., etc. These were the laws given to Moses and to the people of Israel when they're in the wilderness by Mount Sinai, roughly 1,500 years before Jesus is at the sermon, giving this sermon on the mount. So about 1,500 years before that is when this is all going on, which means we know that Jesus' sermon on the mount was about 2,000 years ago. So for those of you who are excellent at math, you'll know that we're talking about some laws that were given about 3,500 years ago. And that really leads us actually to our first perspective that some people have of the law, and that is that the law is a relic from an ancient religious system. That's all that it is. This relic, this thing that's kind of dusted off by some people and held up as being this thing, it's this relic from an ancient religious system. Now, I give you this view as we're getting started because many, many people hold this view, especially in our world and in our culture They believe that we are people who have moved past the Enlightenment on into the ages of information and technology. And so the idea of a God being real or a creator, a designer, you know, we don't need that. We can explain that away. Let alone, we don't need his rules or his laws to dictate what we do with our lives. So to somebody with this perspective, living the law is pointless and foolish. This idea of living the law is pointless and foolish. They would rather have the freedom, and I put that in quotes, to determine themselves what is good and what is bad, and by so doing create their own law. That's why we have sayings and things like that people throw out there like, hey, whatever's good for you, man, you go do that. And we kind of live in this individualistic society where it's kind of like, you know, we can all be a law unto ourselves. Now, we may not articulate it that way, but that's how, for the most part, by and large, our culture and our time operates. That's the prevailing perspective of our culture. Now, what I didn't mention 
is that this view stems from an inaccurate perspective of what the law is. So let's go back to asking, what is the law? I know we already asked that question, but let's go back to asking that. The law, yes, can be overwhelming. If you look at like all of the Old Testament laws, the ceremonies, the purifications, the sacrifices, all of that stuff, there's a lot to it, but it's not actually as overwhelming as we may think. Jesus helps us with this in Matthew chapter 22. I want to ask you to turn there. We will get to Matthew 5, I promise. But let's go to Matthew chapter 22 and see how Jesus helps us with a very succinct and good working definition of what the law is. Jesus is pressed by a religious leader and asked, hey, what is the law? Like, what's the most important command in the law? And in verse 37, you may be familiar with this passage, Jesus gives his response. He says this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6, by the way, here. And he says, This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, you guys have probably heard this before, but listen to what it says in verse 40. It says, All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Now, I want you to hear what he's saying here. All the law and the prophets. What are the law and the prophets? The law and the prophets is the Hebrew Bible, which is for us the Old Testament scriptures. He's saying all the Old Testament depends, and that word depends can also be translated as hangs, as in they rest their weight on. All the laws rest their weight on these two thoughts, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so we can see that the law is about loving God and loving our fellow men. Now, I want to ask you to zoom back to the Sermon on the Mount, which again is, yes, about 2,000 years ago. Jesus is there interacting with this crowd. And what we need to understand is what the crowd was kind of their perspective at that time was very different from the prevailing thought in our world and our culture. For them, they're at really one of the heights of law-keeping in their history. Quick history lesson here. So Moses receives the law 1,500 years prior to this moment with Jesus, right? And he receives the law, and do the people of Israel do a good job of keeping the law in the ensuing years? No, they do a terrible job. Like there's this back and forth where they're following God kind of, and then they're really not, and then it honestly just gets worse and worse. It's this terrible spiral until around the time of Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel, all these prophets, it just completely unravels and comes undone. And the people, God's people, are sent into exile. They're taken out of the promised land and they're sent into exile because God told them that that's what would happen. Yet it doesn't give up on the people at this point. He actually brings back a remnant. And this remnant, these, these people who are brought back, actually are pretty good about keeping the law. They start keeping the law. They, start, they rebuild the temple. They start instituting the sacrifices. They do all the festivals. They are starting to do all the right things. And what happens? God goes silent. The next 400 plus years, God is silent. They don't hear from him. And so the people are left there kind of wondering, okay, God, what are you doing? They're just running the play doing the laws, keeping them relatively well as best as they kind of know how. And yet, nothing's going on. And then all of a sudden, this Jesus character shows up. 
and there's whispers. Okay, who is this Jesus guy? What's he doing? What's he about? And as this is going on, there would have been all sorts of murmuring and wondering if, you know, is this Jesus guy the Messiah? Is he going to come and overthrow the oppressive Roman government? Is he going to come and give us some new revelation, this marvelous new revelation on the law, a new take on the law? Is he going to abolish the law that's already there? That would be kind of nice because, man, this law keeping is hard to do. These are all the perspective, and Jesus speaks to that in Matthew 5, verse 17. Let's have a look. This is our key passage, by the way, and we'll be coming back here throughout our time. Matthew 5, 17, and we're partway into this Sermon on the Mount. And he says, don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. Again, remember, that is, I didn't come to destroy all this Old Testament scripture. He goes on and says, I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. He's saying to them, the law is not changing, guys. I didn't come to abolish. I didn't come to eradicate, to, to dismantle and get rid of that thing. No, it's staying. And he says, until heaven and earth pass away. I don't know if you've checked lately, but heaven and earth still here and have been here since the time of Jesus. And so the law is there and it's still there and it's there for a reason. And that reason hasn't changed. You see, God is holy and requires us to be holy and to have a relationship with him. And the law is the means by which we have a relationship with him. It's the terms for us. It's where it's outlined, how we can have a relationship. So this leads us to the second perspective and the perspective that this crowd listening probably had of the law. And that is that the law is the overwhelming guide to how we please God. The law is the overwhelming guide. To how we please God. Why is it overwhelming? Well, it's overwhelming because it's impossible to keep. Example number one. God tells me and tells you and tells us to love him with all my heart. But in my experience, even if I try to do that on a good day, What typically happens is my heart moves from loving him with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength. It moves from that posture to starting to love other things and other people more than him. And before I know it, something else is sitting on the throne of my heart. Now, don't try and tell me that isn't your experience as well. Example number two. The Lord tells me that I am to love my neighbor as myself. And I may have a good day where I'm like, serving the people around me and loving and being gracious and generous and benevolent and all of these things. But typically what will happen is before I know it, I look up and I've drifted towards being completely self-centered again. And all I'm worried about is me and my life and my goals and my, me, my, my, you know what it's like. Is that not our experience? That's what life is like. Why is the law so hard to keep? It's because sin has come in and has corrupted us. Psalm 51 verse 5 is a straight up depressing verse. It says this. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time 
my mother conceived me. What this is talking about is the influence of sin even over a baby before it is born. We all have sin coursing through us that impacts us and pulls us away from God. Sin is like a disease that wars against God's holy law. So to somebody with this second perspective where the law is this, yes, guide, and and yeah, I should do that, the perspective on living the law is that it's necessary but difficult, if not impossible. There's no joy in it. There's only rules to be kept. And what I want to ask you this morning is, is this the perspective that Jesus wants us to have? If you read verse 20 by itself, it almost seems so. Look at verse 20 with me. We'll come back to verse 19, I promise. Verse 20 says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This verse alone also is discouraging. Because what it's saying to us is that our righteousness, our good deeds need to surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Who are they? They're the experts in the law. These are expert law keepers, people who are experts at the external things, doing all the right things. They were legalists. What is a legalist, by the way? We've kind of thrown out this term legalism, and we will a little bit. Legalism is excessive adherence to law and a dependence on self to fulfill it. And here Jesus is saying that your law keeping has to be better than the experts. Legalism, by the way, is kind of like an exit that you take accidentally off a freeway. Off the freeway of life. You can do it without realizing it. I don't know if you guys have had that experience before where you're like, I just took an exit and now I'm like lost in the city somewhere. And really, that's what legalism's like. All of a sudden, you look up and you're in some sort of confused and lost neighborhood. It's an easy exit for us to take, mistakenly. Don't forget that most of Christendom took this exit. Way back in history, if you look into church history, what you'll find is that there was a large period of time where the church was caught up with doing all of these acts, even though they had the gospel. And it wasn't until 500 years ago at the Reformation when the Holy Spirit reawoken the, reawoke the church to the gospel that things changed and that they got out of the confusion of legalism. Legalism will eventually spit you out into one of two destinations, two confusing neighborhoods, if you would. The first is self-righteousness. Classic example of this is Paul or Saul as he was otherwise known. He's this guy who's like doing all the right things in the New Testament. He's like, you know, uh, trying to follow God, be zealous. He's a Pharisee. He's a Jew of Jews. And then all of a sudden, God comes and interacts with him on this road. And there's this bright shining light. And he looks up and he's like, who are you, Lord? He doesn't even know God, even though he's doing all these things for God. He's a classic example of a self-righteous person. Thankfully, God radically changed him in that moment. And, you know, this incredible change took place. The other destination that legalism will spit us out in is the neighborhood of despondency. Legalism can lead to despondency. That's where we're like, whatever. Like, this is just too hard. Why would I try and fulfill that law? 
It's overwhelming. I've, I've tried that and it just doesn't work. I think Peter is actually a pretty good example of this. Remember Peter, when, when Jesus comes to him and they're starting to first interact and, and Jesus does this incredible miracle with a fish and Peter's an expert on fish. He's a fisherman. And he's like, whoa, okay, this guy is the Messiah. What's his response? He says, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. That's despondency. He's like, I've tried the, the God thing and I, I wasn't very good at it. If that's what you're about, I don't want to have anything to do with you. And Jesus is like, Peter, come follow me. And then again, what do we see? This beautiful transformation and change in Peter's life. You see, self-righteousness and despondency are both negative places to be, negative results, and neither of them bring us closer to God or to our fellow, fellow men. So we're left in an interesting place because Jesus in our passage is holding up the law and he's saying, hey, this is important. We need to follow the law. I'm not coming to abolish the law. And at the same time, he's saying, you need to be better than the experts at following this. And again, if we just took that message by itself and said, okay, guys, go home. You know, hope you had a good Sunday. Like that would be an incredibly discouraging message. But it's not just there in isolation. Thankfully, there is an incredible truth in this passage and one that's tucked in there. When this sermon was probably preached, it was probably either missed or misunderstood. And so I want to go back and see it with you. It's in verse 17. We read it earlier. It says this, Don't assume that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. You remember that? But then it went on and said this, I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. This is a simple little statement that contains the power of God and the gospel in it. Like I can't express enough to you how powerful what he's saying actually is. And yet the people in the crowd probably didn't understand it. Most likely didn't. Some of them wouldn't have heard it and some of them would have been like, oh great, you're going to fulfill the law. I'm glad you think you can do that. But they didn't have the gift of perspective, which we have. We know that Jesus actually lived this out. That he did fulfill the law. That he did everything perfectly and that he went to the cross and died for our sins. And was raised to life again. It's the very core of the Bible. We have the perspective to see this. I want to I show you how this, this little sentence fits into the theme of the Bible. A perfect and holy God created us. We've already talked about that this morning. Man sinned and experienced through that separation from this holy God. So there's this separation that's going on between God and between men. And God, in his grace, gave us the law to give us terms of restitution, a way to make things right. But man could not keep the law, no matter how hard he tried. And at that moment, that's where this sentence makes sense. Jesus came and fulfilled the law, not just for himself, but for everyone. That's how this little sentence fits into the message of the Bible. He came and fulfilled the law for us, so that now, through him, we can experience a new relationship with him, and we can experience eternal life with him. That is the message of the Bible. That is the message of the scriptures. You see, with Jesus, our relationship with the law shifts. And we therefore have a new perspective as our relationship with the law shifts. I find Romans 7 to actually be really helpful on this. And so I'm going to turn there quickly. It's really profound. And we're not going to have time to really jump into it in, in super big depth. But... I want you to turn there to Romans 7 with me and hear how it talks about the change that happens 
when we reach out to Christ and how we no longer have to worry about trying to fulfill and measure up to the law, but our relationship with the law actually shifts and changes. Look at this, verse seven, sorry, verse 1 of chapter 7 of Romans. It says this, Since I am speaking to those who understand the law, brothers, you are unaware that the law has authority over someone as long as he lives. Are you, brothers, sorry, I read that wrong. Are you unaware that the law has authority over someone as long as he lives? For example, a married woman is legally bound to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law regarding her, the husband. So then, if she gives herself to another man while her husband is living, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. Then, if she gives herself to another man, she is not an adulteress. Okay, so he's, he's setting up this illustration. And then, this is the part I really want you to hear. Verse 4, it says this. Therefore, my brothers, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the crucified body of the Messiah, so that you may, not, may belong to another, to him who, raised, who was raised from the dead, that you may bear fruit for God. So what this is saying is that, like, when we experience a reaching out to Jesus and saying, hey, God, I need you to fulfill the law for me. We, you guys remember when we have baptism, when you baptize someone, you say you're buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in a new life. And that new life is what we're talking about. All of a sudden, our perspective on the law shifts and we are different people. We're no longer trying to do it in our own strength, in our own energy. And that is so that, as verse 4 says here, we can bear fruit. I'll go on and read verse 6 for you as well. But now we have been released from the law since we have been, sorry, but now we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not the old letter of the law. So the perspective change comes through Christ. Before Christ, we're under the law and there's no hope of us doing it by ourselves because it's just insurmountable. It's just too much for us to, to be able to live up to. But after Christ, the law becomes something new. It's a new way for us to, uh, to, to follow and to obey God's gracious commands and his goodness for us. It's no longer about list keeping. It's about a delightful experiencing of following Jesus, all because Jesus has fulfilled the law for us. And what this beautiful truth can actually lead us to is another wrong exit. A Christian can think that because Jesus has fulfilled the law, that the law is done and dusted. That we don't need to worry about it anymore. You know, I, well, it doesn't matter how I live. Like, can I do whatever I want to do? Grace abounds. You know, if I sin, Jesus is going to forgive it. It's going to be great. We call that licentious living, living with license, as in I have a license to do whatever I want to do. But Jesus makes it clear and goes on to make it clear again that the law is still there to guide and to lead us. Go back to Matthew chapter 7 with me. Oh, sorry, Matthew 5. And what you'll see in verse 19 is that it says, Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches people to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You see, before Christ, 
or with Christ. Wherever you are, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, the call on humanity is the same. We are to love God and to love our fellow men. What changes when we reach out to Jesus is that he fulfills the law for us so that, not so that we can leave the law behind, but so that we can live out the law by his power. And this is the third perspective and the one that I pray that each of us would have. And that is that the law is the beautiful guide to how we please God when we're empowered by him. This is the third perspective that I would give to you. When I talk about the law this morning, is this the perspective that you have? Do you see it as this beautiful thing, a guide to show you how to please God and not something that you try and do by yourself, but actually something where you're empowered by him to fulfill? You see, the law is about loving God and loving people. The imperative to do that does not change after Christ. What changes is that Jesus gives us the fuel to do it, and Jesus gives us forgiveness when we come up short. So to somebody with this perspective, all of a sudden the law becomes living out the law, actually implementing it, becomes a joyful journey of growth. And I want to ask you again, is that what describes your view of the law, your perspective? Do you see the law as this thing and living out the law as a joyful journey of growth? You see, when we have this perspective, the law is no longer a drudgery, but a love and a passion. And and all of a sudden, Psalms like Psalm 119 make a lot more sense to us. They say, it says things like this in verse 16, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Verse 47, I delight in your commands, which I love. Verse 97, how I love your instruction. It is my meditation all day long. So is that your perspective? Is that how you feel about God and his commands to love God and love people? How do we hold this third perspective? How do we get to the place where that's our perspective? And the simple answer is Jesus. Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Hebrews 12 tells us that. He's the instigator, the starter, and the one who helps us figure it out. So when we submit our lives to him, he sends his spirit to come and to reside in us, to guide and direct us, just like GN was talking about. His spirit starts to lead us and to guide us as we submit to him and say, God, my life isn't yours, uh, isn't mine, it's yours. As we grow in surrendering to the spirit, he will lead us to follow his law. And specifically, he's going to lead us to do two things that I think are worth highlighting in verse 19. The second part of verse 19 says this, But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Who's going to be called great in the kingdom of heaven? Those who practice and teach these commands. You see, God blesses us as we practice these things. Loving him and loving people as we practice loving him and loving people. You see, God isn't looking for us to just give a head nod to these ideas and these thoughts. He doesn't look for mental assent or empty words where we say, yes, I want to love God and I want to love people and I want to grow in that. He's wanting us to actually embrace that at a practical level. And this is where this morning I want to say to you, especially 
Well, I want to say to those of you who are Christians, very clearly, what is God saying to you then? What does it look like for you practically to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength? What does it look like for you to practice that? Are there some things that the Spirit would illuminate to you today that are ways that you may grow in that? Maybe it's being saying, hey, God, you know what? My time is yours. And, and I, at the moment, I'm not acknowledging you with that. And so I'm going to give you the best of my time. I want to give you the best of my time. And so I'm going to set aside this amount of time every day for you, you know, at this part of my day. I, I don't know. Again, this is going to look tailored and specific to each of us. But what does it look like for us to love God with all our heart, soul, and strength and put that into practice? What does it look like for us to put into practice loving our neighbor? Are there people in your life right now that you're at odds with or people that it's hard to love and to engage with? Maybe God's specifically going to put some of them in your heart and in your mind even right now as I'm speaking. I don't know what God's going to specifically say to you, but I want to say that these thoughts about loving God and loving people can't stay as just these theoretical ideas. And so my challenge to you is, is would you pray with me this morning that God would speak to each of us individually and say, say to us what it looks like for us to grow in practicing loving him and loving people. We've got to remember that all of this has to be empowered and led by his spirit. But he doesn't just stop at saying practicing his commands. He also instructs us to pass on. He says, he says that we should practice and we should teach. We've got to pass on to the, you know, whoever that may be. God is going to put people in our lives that we can pass on this. Hey, it's important for us to love God and love people. Who are you passing that on to? Is it your kids? Is it your spouse? Is it your roommates or your neighbors, your co-workers? We can't teach something that we don't actually practice ourselves. And so the practice piece has to come first. And then we can start to teach and to guide. I, uh, coming back from Australia, I decided that I wanted to get into making coffee. Um, I'm not much of a coffee drinker. But uh, in Australia, I enjoyed drinking a lot of espresso coffee with like milk bases and all this sort of stuff. So I'm like, I'm going to learn how to do that. And so I started watching YouTube videos, as you do, you know to like learn how to uh, grind coffee and, you know, tamp it and do all that fancy stuff that they do in coffee stores. And I became a bit of an expert, you know, like just before you knew it, I, I had this thing figured out. No, I didn't. Like at that point, if somebody had asked me, hey, how do I make a coffee? I probably could have given some advice, but it probably would have been terrible because I hadn't actually got my hands dirty doing it. I didn't have an espresso coffee maker. It was all just theory. Now, I have gone out and I have bought a coffee maker and I'm actually starting to practice it now. And there are a few things that I'm learning and I probably could pass on some very basic things to somebody. But the reality is that we have to practice before we can start teaching and the clear directive that we have is that as God's love fills us and as we start to say, how do I respond? We're to grow in loving him and loving others ourselves, but we're also to pass that on to others. And we can't do that unless he's first doing something in our own hearts and in our own lives. So I want to ask you, as you've had a chance to hear this morning and to think, 
I want to ask you to be honest with yourself. Obviously, we're not, I'm not going to like ask you to raise your hands and give answers. But how do you perceive the law? Like when I talk about the law, how do you perceive it? Do you see it as this archaic religious mumbo-jumbo stuff that's kind of got nothing to do with the life of somebody in 2019? Or maybe you have that second perspective where you see it as this overwhelming guide, this list of rules that is pretty much impossible to keep. If you're in one of those two camps, there's a high likelihood that you haven't come to a moment where you've put your faith and your trust in Jesus. And so if that's you this morning, if you're not sure where you sit with Jesus, let me say this as clearly as I can. Jesus fulfills the law for you. And it's the most beautiful thing that you can ever experience. It's freeing. It brings about worship in your life. It brings joy and meaning and purpose. And so if you do not, are not sure where you stand with God, if you're not sure who Jesus is and what he has done for you, I'd love to have the chance to talk to you about that. I mean, you don't need to talk to me about it if you don't want to. Just reach out to him. Pray to him and say, God, I need your help with this life. I understand that I need to have a relationship with you. And there's no way for me to do that outside of Jesus. Becoming a God follower is the most important decision that any of us can make. And so if there's somebody in this room, I'm going to assume there's somebody who doesn't believe this stuff today, right? If there's somebody in this room who this is hitting home and your heart's maybe beating a little bit faster right now, don't leave today without taking care of making this decision to be a God follower, to submitting your life to him. If you've got questions about that, I'd love to talk to you in a moment. I'll be up the back praying with other people so we can talk about that or you can talk to the person who brought you along. But don't just move on from this moment. I guess the third thing that I could ask you this morning to all of us is, do you see the law as the beautiful guide to how you please God and, and are empowered by him? Do you see it as this beautiful thing? And if not, you know, what's God needing to do in your heart, in your life, to change your perspective and your posture on it? If you're a Christian, we should delight in loving God and loving people. And if, if you're not feeling that, be honest, if you're not feeling that, what's going on? Ask yourself, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal in your heart, what's going on? Why am I not loving you, God? Why am I not loving the people that you've put around me? Ask that question today. Now is the time for you to respond here in just a moment. And to ask that question, don't just move on and pretend that that thought didn't just happen. That would be to waste what the Spirit wants to do this morning. And so that's my challenge to you this morning. It's a pretty simple one. But if you're not feeling a love and a delight in God for him and for people, ask him to highlight what's going on and, and to bring healing and restitution in that area. I want to end today with a quote from a Puritan called Richard Sibbs. And he beautifully, in a few words, a very simple sentence, captures the essence of a lot of what we've talked about today in this beautiful and simple little quote. He says that the law is sweetened by the gospel and becomes delightful to the inner man. And so I want to ask you, is that true of you? Is the law being sweetened in your heart by the gospel? And do you see 
this command to love God and to love people as delightful? And is that delightful to your inner man? Let me pray for us. God, help us not to play games or to pretend. God, help us not to go through the motions of church or Christianity. God, we are designed to delight in loving you and loving people. And if we're honest, a lot of us, even today in this room, are struggling to do that. And so, God, we pray that you would come and speak specifically to areas that you want to change, areas where you want to grow, areas where you want to change our hearts and our perspectives. God, there may be areas of bitterness or hardness in our hearts. There may be areas where we're struggling to believe that you're good or that you're trustworthy or that you'll take care of us. There may be relationships that have gone sour, God that we're not giving to you. There's so many things that come in and draw our hearts away from delighting in you and in your law. And so, God, we pray that today you would bring renewal, that you would bring freshness, that you would move amongst us, as we sang earlier, that you would move amongst us by your Spirit. Help us not to just quickly move on. Lord, I pray for anyone who doesn't know you today that needs to make that monumental decision that you would stir in their heart, that they would not physically be able to leave this building without making a decision to follow you, God, to give their life completely to you. Lord, we give you our time and even our responses now. Thank you. Amen.